T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence starts. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. It wasn't preordained when the astronauts took off from the Earth. We didn't know if they were going to make it. It wasn't history then. It was just an amazing moment. Welcome to At Length. I'm Steve Scher. Thanks again for tuning in. I was born in the mid-1950s. My generation has been stuck with many labels, boomers, hippie, yuppies, to name just a few of the polite ones. But for me, I think I'm part of the space age generation. watching the race to the moon unfold on television. I remember watching Alan Shepard blasting off, John Glenn orbiting the Earth, the first Apollo missions, Apollo 11. A man walked on the moon. Incredible. That collective experience provided an awesome accomplishment for my generation to consider, maybe even be shaped by it. So, where is the amazement today? Where is the wonder for the astronauts who right now are circling the globe, where is the really jaw-dropping amazement? Understand that just eight years after JFK promised we would get to the moon and do the other things, we got there. People built the machines, built the spacesuits, the gloves, the heat shields, the parachutes that made it possible. The reason we have this cliche, if we can get to the moon, then we can, is valid. It's real, because somehow we did it. Ordinary working women and men were given the task, and they invented it. Charles Fishman is an award-winning reporter who has spent years reporting on the space program. His latest book, One Giant Leap, The Impossible Mission That Flew Us to the Moon, tells the story of the hundreds of thousands of people who made the moon landing possible. He comes to Seattle Friday, June 28th, 7.30 at Town Hall, part of Seattle's Summer of Space, celebrating the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, which includes your ability and my ability to go to the Museum of Flight and see Columbia, the capsule that flew to the moon flew Armstrong, Aldrin, and Bean to the moon. We spoke before a Seattle visit in this era when journalists are routinely insulted and attacked by the current occupant of the White House and his many, many supporters. Fishman is a proud working journalist. I'm a reporter, and, and that's how I think of myself. I've been a reporter professionally since 1983, but I've probably been doing journalism every day since I was in the ninth or 10th grade. You know, I was editor of my junior high newspaper, editor of my high school newspaper, um, spent most of my college career at the newspaper, and I graduated um, from college to a job at the Washington Post. And so I'm, I, I am a very happy journalist. I love being a reporter. Where did you uh, go to school? I went to Harvard. Did you study journalism there? They don't have a journalism no. program, do they? No, I, they do not have a journalism program for undergraduates. They... Um, Harvard's home, of course, to the Neiman 
Foundation, and they are home to a, a big media studies um, uh, group at the Kennedy School of Government that's a graduate program. Oh. No, I studied history, economics, um, uh, economic development, stuff like that. The good stuff, what you need to be a journalist. Well, I, that's what I was thinking. Like, I, 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 when I was in college, I spent so much time at the newspaper, I didn't feel like I needed to spend any more time studying. Um, I get that. But I, I'm the same way. I had the same experience, not at Harvard, at the University of Oregon, and then at the University of Washington for a master's. But I studied journalism in, uh, in, for my undergraduate, and I thought, this was really not the way to go. And so I mostly ended up taking classes in economics and history and, and English. I think it's hard to learn journalism in a classroom. I, I think it would be hard to learn concrete pouring or carpentry in a classroom. And, and, yeah. and there's a degree to which you, you, you got to go ask real people real questions about what's happening in their real lives and then come back on deadline and try and make sense of it. Yeah. And that's a little harder to do in a classroom setting. Tell me something. When did you get excited about the idea of writing about the, the people who made the moon landing actually happen? I've kind of been trying to write this book for 12 years, and uh, I guess I had to prove to the book world that I could write a book before they would let me. Um, when I first started um, talking about writing this book um, uh, uh, a dozen years ago, no one was interested, but at that point I hadn't written any books. So I've been interested in NASA and how you accomplish something as extraordinary as going to the moon in eight years for, you know, for 20 years. I, I was, I was uh, uh, an eight-year-old boy um, during the moon landings, and I built Saturn rocket models, and I built, you know, moon spaceships out of Lego, and I watched the moon landings. I have a, an, an LP, a, uh, <laughs> an actual um, record, of, of some of the Gemini missions, which has the, the audio back and forth. And I used to, I literally wore new grooves in it, listening to it when I was a boy. So I, 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 thought, the, I thought the space missions themselves were absolutely amazing and fantastic. But as a grown-up journalist, the part that's been interesting to me and that was interesting to me was the people back on Earth who had to do the work. The astronauts are are rightfully honored as heroes of of going to the moon, and most of the story is told from their point of view. Um, but um, on eleven, you know, eleven Apollo missions had three seats each. That's thirty three missions, thirty three people who flew. Actually, a bunch of them flew more than once. So there's only twenty seven people who actually flew on Apollo spaceships. There were 411,000 people working on Apollo back on Earth. And I wanted to tell the story of what it was like to make the lunar module, to make the parachutes, to make the computers. And so that's, that's what I went after. You know, you're coming to Seattle at a time that the uh, Museum of Flight in Seattle has the uh, Columbia, and we have a few other things that are on display from the Smithsonian. You've, of course, seen all those things, yes? Absolutely. What surprises you about, about looking at them? I think one thing that surprised me was how big some of these rockets and, and capsules were, bigger than I thought they were. 
<laughs> That's because, Steve, they seem big to you because you didn't have to live in them <laughs> for, for eight days. You know, what surprises me about the, the physical hardware itself is, um, is really two things. First, Americans love their space hardware. We love space and we love our space hardware. The most visited museum in the world is the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum. We love going and looking at the, the lunar modules. There are a couple of them that didn't fly. So you can see actual lunar modules that would have flown that were never launched. You can see, you, you guys have Columbia out in Seattle. That's the command module that, that the astronauts splashed back down into the ocean in. It flew all the way to the moon and back. And to me, what is so um, wonderful about the actual hardware, you can see the spacesuits at the Air and Space Museum here in Washington, D.C. They've got an Apollo spacesuit glove that you can on display that you could put your hand into and flex it and see what it felt like to try and move the glove. Now, of course, you aren't pressurized and all that, but, but still kind of an amazing feeling. Um, the stuff seems so vivid and so real. You kind of want to walk up to the Columbia spacecraft, to the Apollo 11 command module, and, and, and sniff those scorch marks, you know, put your hands on the burn marks. Does it still smell like, like it was passing through 5,000 degrees of heat? Um, the other thing that is so striking to me about them is, 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 a, is a kind of duality. They seem very up to date. You don't look at them and, and think as you would look at a Model T or as you would look at, you know, a B-29 Super Fortress from, from the World War II era. They don't seem old fashioned, especially on the outside. They're like, wow, this stuff was real. It was robust. You just said it was bigger than you thought. <laughs> they were going, they were going a quarter of a million miles. They were going a long way in that stuff. But I got the chance when I was a Washington Post space reporter to step inside the cockpit of one of the lunar modules. This one is in Houston at the at Johnson Space Center. And um, what is so striking inside is that the technology they had to fly to the moon was very much like um, the cockpit of a, of a 1960s era military airplane. It was toggle switches and indicator lights. And they literally had, you know, uh, uh, a lot of aviation instruments that any pilot would recognize on the, on the control panel. They were going a long way and doing something really hard. And we were really stretching our ability to make that happen. We were, we were, we were pushing every limit of the technology we had available to make it happen. And when you look at the stuff, you see that. You know, the other, um, thing, oh, go ahead. The, the other thing I'm struck by when, when people visit the stuff is, and I, I think this is sad, people look at the Apollo equipment and they look at it differently than they look at like an old train from the Transcontinental Railroad era or Civil War, you know, uh, uh, battle equipment. It, it, it makes people nostalgic. Like, why don't we fly to the moon anymore? And that's kind of an odd feeling to have. Like you don't go look at World War II airplanes and tanks and think, if only we built tanks like we did in 1944. And so it's, it's a little too bad that we look at this stuff and it makes us wistful for a different America. And so 
I, I, I'm at pains to puncture the idea that that was a different country. It isn't. We could still do anything we want to do just like we did then. So you think the wistfulness is from the, what you said, a sense of nostalgia of, of this era is past? I mean, we've, we're sending, we have a space station, we have amazing satellites. Well, I don't think ordinary Americans connect with satellites, that's for sure. So we do have the most incredible satellites and, and we live in the space age. We just don't live in the Jetsons version of the space age. We're not flying around, but what we do here on Earth requires space literally every minute of every day. You know, your all that navigation you do with your iPhone, whether it's just your jogging route or, you know, how to drive from uh, from Houston to Dallas, that's all done using satellites, of course. And, you know, the space station is an absolute marvel. It's it's uh, the, the expanse of the space station is is uh, bigger than a football field. The interior space in the space station is bigger than a 747. There's six people living in space all the time, 24 hours a day for 18 years. But tell me what the mission of the International Space Station is. Tell me what we're actually doing up there. One of the things that people connected with about Apollo was, I know what we're doing here, and I know why we're doing it, and I know... I don't know how hard it is, but I know it's really hard, and I know why that's worth doing. Now, the International Space Station is really hard, too, and really demanding, too, and really impressive as well. I just don't quite understand, speaking sort of for the collective eye, we just don't really understand what the point of it is, and that makes it a little hard to identify with. So the point of Apollo, as you write, was what? Was it to get to the moon and Kennedy energized us with that? Or was it, as, as you write, that Kennedy really felt just to compete with the Russians? I mean, was it a race that we felt engaged in? Is that it? Well, the point of Apollo was to get to the moon. And the people who did it, that, that, that army of 400,000 people, you know, there were more people for, for three or four years, there were more people working on Apollo than fighting in Vietnam. That's extraordinary. 400,000 people just to launch 11 Apollo missions. That's really extraordinary level of, of commitment and sort of intensity of preparation. Uh, and, and it was a race. It would not have happened. That is so clear. In, in my early naivete, you know, whatever, eight years ago, I thought, I'm going to write the story of the race to the moon without the, the rivalry and the politics and all that stuff. I'm just interested in how they did it. And when you plunge in, as I discovered, and, and, and try and go deep and understand why we did it and what motivated it, you can't separate the race to the moon from the moment it happened. And the moment it happened, we were getting our butts kicked. It wasn't like an athletic rivalry, like some kind of contest with, with the Soviet Union, who's gonna win today and who's not. It was a contest about freedom and liberty and what form of government and what form of economic system was gonna be in place in every nation in the world. It was, it was in those days, it felt like a life or death struggle. And in space, the Russians launched the first 
space vehicle of any kind, Sputnik. They launched the first creature into space, the dog Laika. They launched and recovered the first two creatures ever to go into space and return safely. Also dogs who, who flew together, Strelka and Belka. They flew to the moon first. They launched the first human being into space. They conducted the first spacewalk. At one point, they did a four-day mission, a single four-day mission that was at that moment longer than all the space missions America had flown combined. They were kicking our butts. And John Kennedy said, if we're going to catch up, we have to reach so far that their head start doesn't matter. And the way to do that is to go to the moon. So I think... I think it's, it was born out of a sense of rivalry. What's interesting is that by the time we landed on the moon, it had become an incredible unifying force. In a, in a terribly divided time, the 1960s, going to the moon was something not only everybody in the United States participated in, people everywhere watched in awe as, as um, Armstrong and Aldrin climbed down from their lunar module and started walking around on the moon and, and then the five missions after that. It went from being something born of, of, of this geopolitical contest to something that actually unified not only the US but the rest of the world as well, just in appreciation, in, in, in awe at what human beings could accomplish. Now, even, our, even the current occupant of the White House talks about a space force. He talks about travels beyond Earth, but nobody seems to believe it, and surely nobody is at all um, energized by it, jacked by it. Is that because not just nostalgia, but also a sense of, I don't know, uh, disappointment is set in? You know, at the, here's the, the FAQs for the Destination Moon, the Apollo 11 mission at the Museum of Flight, one of their questions, their last questions is, did astronauts actually fly to the moon? And they answer yes, you know, and they landed. First time they landed was 1969. But just that that question's in there makes me think, not just does it feel like it's nostalgia, but that people have come to sort of be cynical about it. Well, there's, there's, two, there's two different questions there. So let's, let's tease them apart. Um, I don't think people in general are excited by um, uh, Donald Trump's um, saying he wants to go to the moon by 2024 because he has declared, and, and, and um, Vice President Pence actually gave the speech, um, that they're going to do this, but there's no budget backing it. And so there's no sense of urgency. And so they're planning to do something that took eight years last time with an all out crash program. Um, and in the first two or three of those eight years, there was unlimited commitment from Congress. That faded a little bit as time went on. And now there's no commitment from Congress. There's not even a request from the Trump administration for the money necessary to do it. So. It's one thing to talk about something and to insist that this is important and we should do it. But if you don't actually ask for the resources to make it happen, why would anybody believe you? And, and that's kind of connected to many, many years. Obama said we were going to Mars. The, the younger George Bush said we were going to Mars. He also said we were going back to the moon. And, 
and and those speeches are beautifully written and they sound all the right notes, but there's never any political will put behind it. John Kennedy put his muscle behind this immediately. The day he gave the speech in May 1961, the budget proposals were on the hill. <laughs> Here's the money we need. Here's what it will look like year one, year two, year three. Um, Lyndon Johnson took over from Kennedy, obviously, and he did the same thing in his first budget, which unfortunately he had to turn around and submit just just eight weeks after John Kennedy was assassinated. He cut almost everything because they were worried about the U.S. economy, but he did not cut NASA or the moon program. So those guys put real political muscle behind it. Bush gave a good speech, but didn't put the muscle behind it. Um, Obama gave a beautiful speech, didn't put the muscle behind it. There's no evidence that the Trump administration is serious about going to the moon by 2024. This other question about whether people believe it or not, I just think that's poppycock. If my view is, if you wanna live in the world where we didn't go to the moon, you live in that world. It was such an arresting human achievement. So many, 10,000 problems had to be solved to get us to the moon. I prefer to live in the world where it actually happened and where you can understand what kind of impact that had. You know, I uh, I took a tour recently of Blue Origin, their their uh, facilities in Renton, Washington. And I've been to the Blue Origin factory myself. Well, what uh, then? You must. I was struck by one thing in particular, and it goes to what you're talking about. There are people there hauling pieces of metal that they are shaping into uh, gears or tools or sheathing that will be used in a rocket ship. I mean, it's so. You know, it's 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 so fundamental. They they're using the skills of the Boeing workers who built airplanes, and now these same machinists are crafting these parts. And it's just it's just sort of mind-boggling. It goes to exactly what you're writing about: people using their hands and their brains and machines made these rockets, make it happen. That's it's remarkable to me. Well, it is. What what I was so struck by in in studying Apollo was how much of the work was done in a way we wouldn't even imagine. It was done by hand. In, in 1960s America, there was this high-tech element of life and work and business, and there was this handicraft element that really was an echo of, of the 19th century. So the parachutes were sewn by hand, and they were folded by hand, and only three people in the country were licensed to fold the Apollo parachutes and they were forbidden by NASA to ever ride in the same car at the same time for fear that there would be a car accident and they would and, and all three of them would be injured at the same time. The yeah, spacesuits. crazy. The spacesuits were mini spacesuits in general are miniature spacecraft. That's what they are. One person spacecraft. The spacesuits were sewn by hand. 21 layers of material nested inside each other, each layer, each stitch sewn by hand by a woman in Delaware. Um, the computer uh, programming, this was the earliest days of computing. The Apollo computers were the smallest, fastest, most advanced computers ever created. 
They were the first computers to use what we think of as computer chips, integrated circuits. NASA took this incredibly bold, risky move. MIT actually said, we want to use integrated circuits at a moment when IBM said we won't use them. And not only did NASA put computer chips in those computers, they were the first computers to ever have responsibility for human life. And, and we did the hardest thing we could with those early computers. The, the programs, the memory for those computers was woven by women in Waltham, Massachusetts, who used to work in textile factories, sitting at looms, weaving wires, one wire at a time. It took six weeks to literally weave the memory of a single Apollo computer. So I was just stunned by how much of this work had to be done by hand because the technology we wanted to create, we didn't have the tools that we would normally have used to create that technology in a factory. Yeah. But it didn't slow us down. Yeah, this is a very, I mean, I, what I loved about this story is that this is a hidden figures story. This is looking back, as you write about, you know, we always talk about the, the, the people who flew, the heroes at the top. But in this day and age, and it seems like an appropriate story for this day and age, maybe because of that nostalgia, people are looking. It's interesting to see who does the work, who makes it happen, who is, you know, has to go to a bathroom 40 feet away, but still, or 40 yards away, but still uh, is there to do the work on making the mission successful. And that's what these women were doing. I, I, and, and all these folks, were, it just sort of was cool. Playtex, that they turned to Playtex for a... Uh, for, for building the spacesuits because they are they understood what it was like to create support and flexibility. Isn't that isn't that wonderful? Playtex won the contract to design uh, and and then and then sew and then create NASA's spacesuits, a, a decade long um, sort of adventure. And that division of Playtex, Playtex has had many corporate owners since then. The apparel part. The the um, the industrial part, but that division is still building NASA spacesuits. So it it turned out well for us, and also also well for Playtex, and an incredible tale. You know, there were there were twenty thousand companies that worked on Apollo. There were it was it was ten to one, twelve to one. There were many fewer people inside NASA than there were outside NASA, and so. It, it, it was an extraordinary undertaking. The astronauts, among other things they did, I think people may have heard this, the astronauts used to visit the factories where this work was being done. And, and that turned out not to be a, they weren't just flying the flag and saying thank you. They were connecting the national effort, this incredibly intense mission with real people. And so there are stories, there are a couple of them in the book of, of frontline factory workers saying, you know, I don't think this particular piece of equipment got the attention it needed. And and I remember meeting those young men two weeks ago, and we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put this one in the junk heap and start again because it's really important that we get this right. Because I remember the 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 people who came here and met me. And so everybody was all in. Everybody was all in. The astronauts worked as hard as anybody had an incredibly demanding role before they flew and, and, and while they were flying. In fact, the, one of the people uh, in charge of sort of planning the flights, his constant worry was that 
the astronauts had too much work to do while they were in flight. And when you when you read about it and when you listen to the the tape recordings of the moon missions, which I've I've listened to hours and hours, they were busy all the time. There was not a lot of pausing and joyriding. They were they were trying to make sure they got where they were going and, and did it in a safe way. Tell tell the story of the uh, the folks who were watching Aldrin especially cavorting on the moon and what they were thinking as they watched them. You know, this was this was such an amazing moment for me um, in, in, in reporting terms. I'm, I'm watching video of a group of people who who made the spacesuits. So during the moon missions, each part of the mission had people in Houston right adjacent to mission control so that if anything went wrong with the lunar module, if anything went wrong with the command module, if anything went wrong with the spacesuits, if anything went wrong with the radios, there were people right there who could try and answer that question immediately. And, and often there was an open phone line at, at a moment when it, when it cost you know, 20 cents a minute or 25 cents a minute to do long distance calls. They, they kept open phone lines, obviously, to the big suppliers. But for that first moonwalk, um, uh, ILC, which was the industrial division of Playtex, had a group of people in Houston in case something went wrong with the spacesuits. And they were watching the moonwalks just like everybody else in real time. And, and about half an hour in, Buzz Aldrin started to cavort around the moon. And you can, right on YouTube, you could see this. He starts running like a running back. He hops like a kangaroo. He, he, he bounces from foot to foot, talking about how hard Talking about how hard it is to keep your balance, and uh, and boy, it would be too bad to fall on his face, and you really have to be careful. And the there's video of the spacesuit people, the the guy who managed uh, creation of the spacesuit, Sonny Ream, and women who sewed, and sort of intermediate technical people, talking about how nervous it made them to see Buzz Aldrin. Uh, running around like a crazy guy on the moon. Sonny Ream, the, the, the manager, who's only 30 years old, he literally said, I was just thinking that crazy bastard needs to get back in the spaceship and stop behaving like that. And what's funny is that to us, that seems like an odd reaction. They created these spacesuits. The spacesuits are the spacesuits that human beings are wearing. The first time they've ever visited another planetary body in the universe, they should be thrilled. This is their, you know, moment of triumph. And their feeling was anxiety because they didn't want to be the reason something went wrong. And they didn't know how the story ended. In the end, we landed on the moon six times. There was not a single significant technical problem on the surface of the moon. The lunar modules worked, the spacesuits worked, the, 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 the moon cars, the lunar rovers worked, and the one near disaster, Apollo 13, NASA's incredible army of people came together and brought those people home. So even the disaster turned into a moment of triumph. But right there at Apollo 11, those folks didn't know how it was gonna come out. And so it's really interesting to hear them talk about how they couldn't calm down until Aldrin and Armstrong climbed back up into climbed back up the ladder and went inside the hatch and sort of took off their helmets and and were and were safe and sound. Yeah, we don't know the future. We forget that, right? And we're watching it. We're on well, the and edge. it's also it's also a sign of their 
their their sense of commitment and integrity. Like I, we know we've done everything we can to make this, you know, work exactly as it should. But boy, I boy, I hope it does. Yeah. <laughs> right. We don't we don't know the future. I, I I said in the book, watching that video was like a time machine. We know everything came out well. They had no idea what was going to happen. They just didn't want Aldrin to fall on his face and puncture his spacesuit, which, yeah. by the way, wasn't going to happen. But yeah, um, because it wasn't going to puncture. It was strong enough not to puncture. Twenty-one layers. Twenty-one strong enough to stop a micrometeorite. He, he wasn't. He wasn't. If he'd tried, I'm not sure he could have uh, uh, punctured it. <laughs> it. But it is remarkable that they built that. Well, what were you saying? The lunar lander had never, of course, been tested in a vacuum. So they didn't really know how it was going to function. And yet they built it. The science came together to, and the technology came together to build it. And it worked. The lunar module was really extraordinary. I, I give over a chapter to the lunar module precisely because of that. It, it's probably the first spacecraft that couldn't be tested at all before it was in use because the lunar module was designed to fly only in space. So it didn't need to be aerodynamic. It didn't need to be strong enough to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. It didn't need to handle any of those engineering loads. You weren't allowed to step on the ladder of the lunar module uh, as an ordinary person because the ladder wasn't designed to take the weight of people on Earth. It was designed to take the weight of astronauts on the moon. All the parts of the lunar module were thinned to save weight and 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 no one actually knew how it would fly because you can't fly a zero gravity machine in gravity. And so they designed uh, simulators that the astronauts trained on, you know, for, for, for months and months, but the people who designed the simulators had never actually flown the lunar module. So it was a triumph of engineering. And in fact, when they got out there, they loved the way the, the lunar module flew. They loved the way it handled in space. But that, by the way, is why there were so many test missions, Apollo 9, Apollo 10, um, uh, putting the lunar module out there to, to, to try and understand how it would actually work once you got it into space. We didn't, we didn't just pack it all up and fly straight to the moon. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you quote, uh, what do you quote, Pete Conrad? You said you listened to a lot, but you only heard one, one Apollo uh, commander actually comment on flying it while they were flying it. While they were flying it, yeah. It, it, it's a sign of how busy they were that th th they're flying this spacecraft from lunar orbit down to the moon. Then they're, you know, the, the, first, the first guys, Armstrong and Aldrin, were only there. They were only on the surface of the moon walking around for two hours. They were on the surface of the moon altogether barely 24 hours. The, the last three missions stayed three days. And they did seven-hour moonwalks, three of them. And then they would hop in the spaceship, press the launch button, and the top half would blast off and take them back to the command module. But they were so busy while they were flying it that they, that, that they literally never commented on what it was like to fly, except, except Pete Conrad, who says, this, this thing sure flies nice, which, which I think probably the, the, the engineers at Grumman who, uh, who, who spent 10 – the engineers at Grumman spent 10 years of building 14 spacecraft in a factory where during World War II they built 14 fighter planes a day. 
those same people took 10 years to build 14 spacecraft. And I think that one line, this thing sure flies nice, probably paid all those people back for all, for all those late nights and weekends. How about the rover itself? How was it cruising around the moon? Was it a simpler thing to build because it was more like a car things were familiar with or a Jeep? Or was it also very complex? You know, the, the lunar rover is this great story because NASA really wanted to send a rover to the moon in the early days of planning Apollo, but, but they designed something that was the size of a Honda minivan and it weighed 4,000 pounds and, and the astronauts could drive around in it and also live in it. And, and, and sort of 1964, 1965, they realized that they would have had to launch a whole second Saturn V rocket for each mission if they were going to send the, the moon minivan to the moon. And so they, they didn't revise the plan, they just canceled it. And two engineers at General Motors, a guy named Sam Romano and a guy named Ferenc Pavlich, um, were determined that there be a General Motors car for the astronauts to use on the moon. And so even though the lunar rover was canceled, they kept working on development. And the, their key insight was they not only went small and light, the lunar rover uh, in the end, only weighed 460 pounds. Uh, Ferenc Pavlik figured out how to fold the whole car up into a little package, much the way like a chaise lounge folds up. The, the front and back wheels folded into the middle, then they folded toward each other. The whole thing folded up into a little package that you could pack into the outside of the, of the lunar module. And literally weeks before the first moon landing, they went to Huntsville. Uh, Ferenc Pavlix had made a model of this foldable, this mini lunar rover uh, th that was about two feet long, about as long as like the keyboard on your, on your computer. And before they went to Huntsville to show it off, he grabbed his son's uh, astronaut G.I. Joe off the floor. He said he, it, caught, it caught his eye and he thought that's the perfect guy to put in the seat of the lunar rover. And they, they hid outside the office of the rocket pioneer Werner von Braun, and the model that they had made was radio controlled, and they drove it into uh, Werner von Braun's office in Huntsville without him being able to see what was going on. This, this little moon car just comes zooming into his office, and he was on the phone, hung up immediately, looked around, said with his heavy German accent, what, you know, what is this? And then uh, uh, Romano and Pavlik came into his office and said, this is the lunar rover we've designed. We really think the astronauts need a car. Can you get, can you help us convince your bosses at NASA to get this car on the last moon missions? And, and um, Von Braun listened for 30 minutes and then he said, we are gonna do this. And, uh, and he put his whole muscle behind it. And although the moon landings had started and the car hadn't even been started, Von Braun had the kind of influence and power uh, to make something like that happen. And to be honest, it completely changed exploring the moon. The first lunar rover went to the moon on Apollo 15. Uh, one flew on Apollo 15, Apollo 16, Apollo 17. There were of course electric cars powered by batteries that were charged on Earth uh, and then discharged as the thing ran around. And um, in the first 15 minutes that they used the first lunar rover, those two astronauts, Irwin and Scott, went farther 
than all the previous astronauts had gone walking around. And so they were really able to, they drove miles from uh, the, the lunar module landing site. Um, they explored all kinds of geology. They were able to drive over and look at something that just caught their eye. And so it really changed the whole texture. There was a color TV camera mounted right on the front and geologists would, would sit in, in rooms and watch what, what, the, what the astronauts were seeing and say, go, go check out that to the left, go check out that to the right. And actually, we'd never seen the lunar module blast off from the surface of the moon. And so the, the, the lunar rovers were positioned about 100 yards away from the lunar module. The last thing they did was go park it pointing at the lunar module. And so those last three liftoffs were all um, uh, recorded on video as the top half of the lunar module blasted off. They were running the TV camera from, from uh, mission control. So they, th those guys sort of being determined and saying, we really want the astronauts to have a car and we want it to be a General Motors car, uh, they really changed the texture. It's a reminder of these, it, it, sort of what you call the hidden figures, a reminder of that there were real people behind the moon mission and their their passion and their creativity really, really uh, infused the whole effort. Do you, um, I sometimes wonder that our attention to the virtual world has um, maybe removes uh, the sort of impetus and inspiration to people who want to create real things in the real world today. Do you ever worry about that? I mean, I, I guess I worry about it in my own family. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I worry about it outside of that. You know, real stuff is so palpable. It has so much charisma that I think when kids get into engineering programs, when people get into medical school and, and start meeting real patients, and I, I think the, the re, you know, if you meet up, if you meet people who design cars or airplanes or spacecraft. You you yourself said you had gone to Jeff Bezos's factory, Blue Origin. That stuff has incredible power. And so people who are inclined to, to make real things and see how they work in the real world, I, I don't think they're discouraged, you know, by the, by the digital world at all. Um, I, I think the one thing I would say that, if we go back to this idea that people look back on Apollo with a certain wistfulness or nostalgia, like why aren't we that country anymore? I would I would sort of say two things about that. One is we are that country. We, we're the country that invented the internet. We're the country where people put all of human knowledge or tried to put all of human knowledge on the internet. We're the country that decoded the genome. Decoding the genome what was as daunting and impressive a task as going to the moon in its own way. It just wasn't the kind of thing that was easily televised, right? So we, first of all, we still do those things, but, but the other thing is that we have to be rallied to the cause. These causes don't just happen. One of the kind of hidden secrets of Apollo was at no point during the race to the moon, if you look at the the public opinion polling, if you look at Gallup and Harris during the 1960s, not even half of Americans 
supported the moon mission. When it started, in the thick of it, just before we landed on the moon, Harris did a poll right after Apollo 8 orbited the moon and, and read Genesis on live TV on Christmas Eve. Even then, not even half of Americans supported going to the moon. But on the, on the, on the evening of that first moonwalk, the moonwalk started at 11 p.m. Eastern time, 94% of American households watched. So if you rally America to a cause, if you say that's a goal that's really important, we ought to chase it. And I would say solving climate change is a perfect example. If we had leaders who said, this is vital, we need to crack this problem and, and, and lots, you know, lots is at stake. Our, you know, the future, our future happiness and ability to live good lives is at stake. And, and that's what they said about going to the moon. We would, we would do it. We will do it. And so for me, the lesson is th this was impossible. Going to the moon was literally impossible when John Kennedy said do it. We didn't have the rockets, the launch pads, the spacesuits, the spaceships, the computers. We didn't have the space food. And eight years later, they were worried that the astronauts were having too much fun on the moon. So if we are rallied to a cause, we will rise to the occasion. That That is part of the American character. Uh, I, like you, watch those uh, launches, just every one of them from, from uh, Mercury on that were televised. I watched them all, and it was an amazing thing. And I remember feeling how amazing it was, that I was part of an expanding universe, literally. Uh, maybe climate change could offer that similar kind of hope if people... You know, they talk about how the picture from the from the spaceship of the Earthrise rallied the environmental uh, that movement. Was Apollo, that was from Apollo 8, right, rallied. Uh, the, the single picture that had the most impact on humanity of any picture the, the, the helped sort of spark the environmental movement, absolutely. So, so maybe there could be somebody who could, who could do that in a way and, uh, you know, energize people in a way. There could be a lot of people. Um, there were skeptics, as you said, right at the beginning. There were a lot of people who said then and still say, look, let's just send robots. Let's just send cameras and satellites. Um, and then there were other people who said, no, it's gonna, it, it'll influence the economy. 400,000 people, that's going to help the economy. Uh, 400,000 people will get new technologies into our, uh, into our economy and new things built because of space-age tech. But uh, did, it, did it change us? In that way, I mean, just in the you know really obvious way of, of uh, of getting things into the economy, but also in that broader way of like me, seeing the universe. The answer to both those questions is is yes. We one of the things I, I sort of stumbled into doing with with the book is reassessing the impact of Apollo, because you asked. The average person and they say, oh, going to the moon, all we got out of that was was Tang and Velcro. And by the way, Tang and Velcro both existed before Apollo and NASA's in their charming, irritable way is so irritated by the idea that that the moon, the moon missions gave us Tang and Apollo that they maintain a website just to debunk that little myth itself. <laughs> but but in fact, what going to the moon did was usher in the digital age. The, the effort to create the computing technology necessary to go to the moon um, laid the foundation for the entire digital revolution. 
So you can look back and sort of think, God, if it had been a success, I, we'd be going to college on the moon. We'd be vacationing on Mars. We'd, we'd live like George Jetson. But it didn't, instead of ushering in that version of the space age, what Apollo helped do was usher in the digital age, which, by the way, of course, Seattle is one of the ground zeros of that. And, and NASA and Apollo don't get any credit for that. But when you go back and look at the incredible leaps in computing, they, they took computers that were literally the size of refrigerators. And, and in the end, it's, it's not much bigger than like a sheet cake you would buy at a grocery store. And that computer was the smallest, most powerful computer in, in the world at that moment. And then they put human lives in its hands. They put, they put human lives at risk. That laid the foundation for the world we live in. Your, your iPhone can trace its genetic roots back to 1964 and the decision to use computer chips in uh, NASA, NASA computers. By the way, your iPhone doesn't have more computing power than the astronauts did. Any single individual iPhone has more computing power than all the computers NASA had available to it at the same time during the moon missions. The computers on board the, the Apollo spacecraft had less, less brain power than your microwave oven. So the remarkable thing isn't that they were, that they were basic. The remarkable thing is what the, the scientists and engineers at MIT were able to do with them. Even, even at that moment, people made the argument in 1962, 1963, they made the argument that it, it wasn't necessary to send people to the moon. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't safe, it cost 10 times what sending robots would cost, and, and we didn't get 10 times the value out of it. And I would completely disagree. First, starting with, starting with this incredible impact on, on the way we live here on Earth, which was huge. But more to the point, you know, there's this moment, I actually opened the book with this moment. There was this moment when, when Armstrong and Aldrin, after that very first two-hour moonwalk, get back in the lunar module, seal the hatch, repressurize the cabin, and they took off their spacesuit helmets. And they smelled a really funny, odd, unusual smell, completely unexpected. It was the smell of moon dust, of moon dirt. It turns out that moon dirt has a smell. It smells like uh, fireplace ashes or, or the ashes in a charcoal grill after you're done cooking. One of the astronauts said it smells like the air after a, a, a fireworks show sort of has a burned smell. And Armstrong and Aldrin were, were surprised, and all of the subsequent astronauts who, who were warned about it were also surprised at how striking and distinctive the smell was. Well, you know what? There's no robot you can send to the moon that's gonna tell you what the moon smells like. And everything that sending human beings you know, to explore is, is packed into that. Yes, there's lots you can learn, with robotic probes, they're relatively inexpensive, they're marvelous. But in the end, you, you, can, you can watch a lot of videos about Rome on, on YouTube. You can explore all the ruins, you can see the food, you can hear the people talk, you can listen to the fountains, but eventually you wanna go to Rome. And, and the same is true for the moon and Mars and beyond. Yeah, think you'll ever go? You think you'll ever get a chance to at least go on one of those flights that take us to the edge? You know, I, I got to fly in zero gravity to 
report the book. I, I, I bought myself a spot on two zero gravity flights. These are the airplane flights that go roaring up, st almost straight up. And then as they come over the top of a big parabola of a big loop, you're, you're, you're in zero gravity for 35 seconds. And I, I did that, I guess I did, I think I did about 35 of those. So I've been in zero gravity for something like 18 minutes, 35 seconds at a time, and I and I loved it. It it is it is uh, so wonderful to float, and it what's surprising is how natural it feels, given that 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 we live in gravity all the time. I don't know whether I'm going to space, but this new space age, driven by Elon Musk and Robert Bigelow and Jeff Bezos and the Virgin Galactic people. I think if you've got children who are in high school now, um, and certainly their children, they will be able to do their PhD research in orbit. And we will finally, you know, 20 years from now, be getting products that are manufactured better in space. But let's be clear, there's thousands of satellites in orbit now, and we, our, our lives very much rely on them. They just don't need us up there all the time taking care of them. Yeah, sure. But the idea of being there is just so exciting. I'm not sure it's going to happen for me. And to be honest, reporters and authors don't make enough money to buy to buy seats on a on a Jeff Bezos Blue Origin flight. That's not the kind of thing I can justify spending two hundred fifty thousand dollars on. Uh, but I think the next the next generation won't have to spend nearly that. That'd be nice to have some poets up there and some writers, anyways. Um, all right, sir. I appreciate your enthusiasm. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. I, I, I liked it a lot. Thank you, sir. All right, take care. Take care. Bye. Four miles now. Velocity 2,195 feet per second. Charles Fishman is author of One Giant Leap. It's the story of the people who built the machines, the computers, the suits, the ships, the gloves that made the moon landing a reality. He speaks at Town Hall, Seattle, Friday, 7.30, June 28th. Over on my website, you can see pictures Charles Fishman sent me of him floating around at zero-g. The Apollo 11 Command Module Columbia is on display at the Museum of Flight, part of Destination Moon, the Apollo 11 mission. It's at the Museum of Flight through September 2nd. Tell me if it seems a little smaller or a little bigger to you than you imagined. Maybe it seemed bigger to me because I was a naive little kid when Americans landed on the moon. Maybe it was because Americans believed we could rise up to meet the challenges that confront us. Oh well, thinking about space makes me sad and hopeful at the same time. What cause will rally us? Next time, a conversation with a philosopher about baseball. Join me for a play-by-play -play of the big ideas inside the diamond with Alva Noe on the next At Length, and also on our other podcast, In the Moment, produced by Town Hall. And thank you to Town Hall for letting me talk to these wonderful writers. Thank you for listening. Drop me a note, s-s-c-h-e-r at gmail.com, s-share at gmail.com. Leave a review of the podcast wherever you find your podcast. Your opinions, your reviews are the most important thing in letting other folks know about these conversations. People believe in what you like, right? We believe in what other people like. We like the recommendation. I'd appreciate you making one. Thank you. And uh, let's take a look at the stars tonight, shall we?